0: Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in, 310 441 zero five 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 before i get into the book of the week from the past week the book of the week for this week um get ready because i can't say one of the words in the title but it is everything is f'd and that's the f word a book about hope by mark manson uh, I read his book last year, The the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank, also the F word there. So it seems like that is a theme in his titles. Uh, but I did find that book interesting, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank. Um, and this one also, interesting title, Everything is f a book about hope, kind of funny. But I think uh, there is already, to me, an interesting theme there that sometimes when we recognize how things are, except the reality that things are not good and sometimes they're not going to be good or even going to be bad. It actually can allow us to be more hopeful uh, when we let go of those expectations that things always need to be good. So those are my own thoughts. I haven't started the book yet to see what he's going to say, but looking forward to reading that and uh, discussing it on next Monday's show. The book of the week from this past week um, made me feel a little bit uh, confused at times I was going to use mind effed uh, sometimes because it's a very complex book called how to create a mind the secret of human thought revealed by Ray Kurzweil and it's actually funny I was with my brother Parham this weekend and I had this book and I'd forgotten that he had actually mentioned this book to me a few, maybe it was maybe a few months ago, I can't remember exactly when. Um, actually, I guess I didn't remember it at all, but he reminded me that he mentioned this book by Ray Kurzweil, who is someone actually who um, has been incredibly good at predicting how lots of things will advance, but especially things related to technology, uh, computers, those kinds of things. He has made lots of very uh, accurate predictions going back to the 80s and 90s and books that he's written. And so in this book, he discusses his understanding. um, In some ways, I could call it a blueprint for how the brain works, especially the neocortex, the part of our brain that we could probably say makes us the most human or differentiates us from other animals, even other mammals and primates that we have so much of the neocortex as part of the brain that appears to allow for the types of thinking and thought that differentiates humans from other animals. And he shares his perspective on how that system works, which is a pattern recognition system. And now a lot of this book, to be honest, was very confusing or complicated. Uh, For me, uh, he talks a lot about things in a computer science type of a language at times. Not to say he doesn't write in a way that could be understood, but it was pretty complex. Um, And so I won't even get into exactly how he explains that the brain works, but he shares, and I'm looking at some diagrams even, of how he thinks the brain is working uh, using pattern recognition and that we have something like 300 million different pattern recognizers in the brain, and what can make the neocortex of humans so powerful is that all 300 million of them can potentially be activated or can work at the same time. But um, he discusses different ways that we can try to understand the brain better, but also comparing this or using discussions related to artificial intelligence and computers and how trying to build an artificial intelligence or a computer that is like the human brain will also help us understand how the human brain works better. And even how things like speech recognition, which really is quite fascinating because I know when I was a kid, maybe not a kid, teenager, you started hearing things about speech recognition or it became very, uh, you know, it was used in a very, like you can say, archaic now, because it was so bad back then, trying to recognize speech or trying to uh, read or understand what people were saying. But now we see with things like Siri um, and other speech recognition technologies that people use, it can do quite well, not only in understanding, but responding very well. So it's pretty incredible how fast Things have advanced. And that's something he talks about in this book, too. That we, uh, as humans, we tend to think of things in a linear way because that's how most of our world has worked always. So when we think of even advancements in technology, we tend to think linearly, but actually, things like technology. Uh, tend to advance exponentially. It's not a linear growth. And that's why he says he's been so good at making predictions because he understands that exponential growth better than most who tend to think of it in a more linear fashion. Um, So there's discussions on how the brain works that are quite interesting in his understanding of what he thinks Uh, makes sense and how we can try to make a computer like a brain. And that itself is controversial. Some people say we can never do that. Um, He thinks that we can, and he shares his arguments for why that is, um, that we can have that enough computing power and, and the same type of system that operates in the brain. And I think I can see where he's coming from based on what, we have been able to accomplish so far. I do wonder about things like emotional things. He does include that a little bit, but for me, especially as a psychologist, I think what is incredible is um, the emotional connections that we can make. So a lot of the computers, and as far as I know, he talks about actually Watson, which was made by IBM, which was a computer program that could beat two of the best Jeopardy players um, on the show Jeopardy by responding faster than them and beating them at that game, uh, which is quite remarkable. But I do wonder things like emotional intelligence, empathy, uh, connecting in that way. I I don't want to say that computers will never be able to do that, but I think that will take longer. But I think uh, that to me can be more challenging than information in the sense of knowledge. But I'm sure that once understood, even things like emotions, can be understood as emotion as well. And so uh, I can imagine that will be something that will be able to be accomplished. Exactly when and how, obviously I have no clue, but um, the book does get into some of those types of issues. And later in the book, it it gets into some more philosophical discussions, which I thought were quite interesting. One on the concept of consciousness, which um, even what is consciousness is not something that is agreed upon. You know, we talk about the unconscious versus conscious, or if we say that someone was unconscious, we have some understanding of that, but to define that isn't so clear. Sometimes it it appears to be a level of awareness. So when we say someone was unconscious, we mean they weren't aware, they weren't aware of themselves, they couldn't respond, they're not going to have any memory of what happened, and that's one way of looking at consciousness. But when we try to understand it, it's very challenging, and there's what what is considered the hard problem of consciousness, which was um, coined by David Chalmers, which is to describe um, what it is to be conscious, or how do we understand that, and even where that would lie or reside in the brain. What makes humans conscious, or what makes humans conscious in the way that we are, and what else or who else is or is not conscious. I like the understanding, I think also Antonio Damasio talks about it this way, that all animals or even before that, even things like bacteria might be described as having a type of consciousness. And so they have a consciousness that might be different from ours, but it's consciousness nonetheless. And so what we experience as humans is our unique type of consciousness. And maybe in a type of egocentric type of way or human centric way. We think that it's more advanced or the most advanced, but that all creatures can have a type of consciousness. When we look at a dog and the way it responds, we might think, well, it's just responding and it's out of instinct. But to me, there is some type of consciousness or awareness that they're experiencing. But it's so hard to talk about these things because we're understanding it with our own brain, with our own perspective, that human centric Perspective, so we don't know what a dog is feeling when the dog looks scared to me or looks happy to me. That's how I'm interpreting it, um, and, and it's hard to know what that experience is like. To know is it really that, or is it some completely different experience? And then, and he talks about this in the book. Bu- this in the book, we don't even know what other humans are really experiencing. He talks about um, the color red and. So right now I'm in the studio here with Amir, and the table is red. And so we might be both looking at this table and thinking that's a red table, and he might say it's a red table. But what I see, I don't know if that's what he sees. Uh, Qualia, that that quality of the experience, is something that we can't really know, even human to human, let alone human to dog or trying to understand other beings and their consciousness. And so it's tough when we have these conversations. And sometimes I think we can try to understand it better and we can have these discussions knowing that we won't really be able to solve them in the sense of knowing for sure. But I don't think that, I don't think that means that we shouldn't try to understand them better and that maybe there can't be research that could better understand this as we understand the brain better. Maybe we'll understand consciousness better, what it is, And how it might be created in the brain if it's something at all. Um, So I thought that was interesting, some of those discussions of consciousness. And he ties that into uh, looking at if we were able to make intelligent beings, if you want to call them robots or artificial intelligence, that was looking very human. And it reminded me of the show. I only really saw the first season, Westworld, which was on HBO recently. Um, where they had these robots that looked indistinguishable to humans and had very phys- human looking. And of course, the actors were actual humans. So, but they were very human looking uh, physically in all ways. And even in how they responded and their emotions, they were very human like. And then, so you do have these weird thoughts of like, well, should we care about? This robot. It makes us care. If you see it gets sad, it's going to elicit empathy from you. But then you wonder, well, should I care? And you see this in the, in the show where they would sometimes abuse them in horrible ways, kill them, rape them, do whatever they wanted with them because they're like, well, they're just robots. But then you wonder, well, should we care about them? Um, are they conscious if we're able to make them human-like? And if we were to give them essentially a human brain, the brain like a human uh, in AI form, would that mean they're conscious? And um, Ray Kurzweil argues, or at least he says, he thinks we will, or he will um, feel that way and feel that humanness in them. And there is a consciousness uh, there. And it's it's a tough one to really understand. And as I said, I don't think there's a clear cut answer, um, but you can think for yourself about that. To me, this distinction of if something is conscious, and he talks about this, is if we should care about the thing or care if it gets hurt. If I rip a piece of paper in half, you don't care. But if I rip an animal, hopefully you will care, and I won't do that. But if you rip a thing that we think is conscious or has feelings, we don't like that. But if we rip an inanimate object or what we consider inanimate, most people won't care. Even something that could be living, like a plant, we won't respond the same way if someone tears celery in half, Uh, as if they did a living thing. Or again, I just caught myself there. Celery is a plant that is alive before it's, I guess, taken out of the ground. Um, So what we consider conscious or what is worthy of care or not being harmed is affected by how we look at these things. And and to me, it's this mindset that I think we should have a, a kindness towards and compassion towards all things. And when you recognize the interconnectedness we have with the whole world, it makes it a lot harder for you to just want to destroy or hurt something just to hurt it or not to care about it. Whether it's, of course, another human or an animal or even things, there can be a way of looking at everything as interconnected, which makes you treat it with a respect or care and compassion. But, uh, you know, these things are very complicated. And so he also talks about identity and what makes us who we are. And that is also a very complex issue. And he talks about how if we were to um, replace parts of your brain by, let's say, artificial, non-biological substrates that are essentially the same, that have the same function, or maybe even function a little bit better, but keep you essentially the same, if we removed your whole brain and put essentially your brain enhanced, is it still you? And so first he has an example of if you were still alive and they made one like you, You'd probably feel like, no, this is me and that one is a copy of me or that one is like a fake me. But then if there wasn't that fake one and they just started to replace parts of your brain to essentially make you like that, what you think of as a copy, you'd probably say, no, that is me. So what is it that makes you, you? And it's not so clear. And he also talks about how the cells in our body are constantly changing. So me who is sitting here today, none of the cells in my body were probably the cells that I had a year ago or I don't know how long ago. Um, and so because of that, really what makes me, me, there is a me that I feel like is constant, but what is that? And even sometimes that could be argued, is it an illusion that we have something that allows for us to want to make sure our genes get sent to the next generation that maybe this illusion of identity of meanness is not a real thing at all. That's very complicated and really interesting. Um, he also talks about the singularity. He has a book titled, the singularity is near and. This is a concept in artificial intelligence looking at um, how we can be enhanced or connected in a way, although I guess it could be defined in lots of different ways, but in this book, the way I sensed he was talking about, or I felt about it, was um, if we can be enhanced through intelligence or artificial intelligence in a way where it would almost be indistinguishable where the human ends and the technology begins, um, and it would, in a way, potentially enhance our capacities. Imagine if you could think, but using a cloud, so you'd have access to all the knowledge of the world, but then you can also think at the same time with that knowledge rather than having to look it up in some way. And he argues that in some ways we have reached some of that. If we look at our phones, it's an extension of us. It's not physically inside our body, but for most of us, it might be almost attached to us as if Uh, It is. We're holding it or it's in our pocket the whole time. But this has access to all this knowledge that enhances, for example, what we can do intellectually. Um, So in some ways, that's maybe why he thinks it's near. And as I said, he he has a way of making good predictions. And he talks about that in this book, too. This book, I think, came out several years ago, maybe 2012 or so. So he makes some predictions for the end of this decade as well. Um, They were quite fascinating. So it was a very complicated read. Um, Parts of it, as I said, I couldn't quite grasp completely when it was about things that were more, to me, computer science related or uh, things of that sort. But a very interesting discussion from someone who is a great thinker. Um, And again, my brother was the one who told me about him without me remembering, as we can see the limitations of the, the brain and why maybe we could use some enhancement. But that was How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought Revealed by Ray Kurzweil. Uh, and after the break, I'm going to talk a bit more about some thoughts on artificial intelligence and how it might change our world, but also from a psychological perspective. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dallagui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so in the first segment, I was talking about the book, How to Create a Mind, The Secret of Human Thought, revealed by Ray Kurzweil. And as I mentioned, artificial intelligence was... Uh, theme throughout the book, trying to understand, could artificial intelligence, um, essentially, could we create a human mind that was based on artificial intelligence and what would that look like? And he shared a lot of his thoughts on that. Um, And another theme related to artificial intelligence, he touched on it briefly, things like driverless cars, but people talk a lot about how many of the jobs that people hold today will be taken over by ai or taken over by robots or we won't need them anymore things like even driverless cars we could maybe have a day where instead of having uber drivers your the car will drive itself and uh, many other jobs in production and even customer service potentially could be taken over millions of jobs uh, and i don't know the exact numbers my brother power could give you much much better uh, estimates on that but nonetheless we know that lots of jobs will be lost in that way or won't be needed anymore. Maybe I shouldn't say lost because they'll be taken care of. And this is going to create a lot of people who won't have jobs that are needed anymore. And there's sometimes a question of, well, what are these people going to do? What's going to happen? And so I wanted to share some of my thoughts about this. I think it's a obviously a very complicated situation with so many moving parts that it's hard to predict what's going to happen, but some thoughts... Um, I had about that uh, relate to some of the factors that we take into account when we see a change like this. So to begin with, um, I think looking at things historically, it's kind of interesting to me because we used to live, and some people still do, thankfully, in a way where we had very close ties with one another, with the people in our family and the community or small community that we lived in things like hunter-gatherer tribes, people spent a lot of time together, uh, focused on the relationship. They had to try to survive, and life could have been difficult, and as it still can be, but there might have been more at stake when it came to their survival and more work that had to be done. But there was more of a connection to one another. And then we saw the advancement of things like uh, agriculture and what we think of as advancements, but really what we saw was people got more focused on work um, and less focused on each other. And unfortunately, what this really was for most of history, and still is actually, is that many people were working a lot and breaking their backs, especially back then literally, and even still to some degree, to make some people live very comfortably. So we had most people working a lot, and some people working or living very comfortably because of that, accumulating that wealth and that comfort. And as we've advanced, we still definitely have a huge disparities in wealth. And unfortunately, many people who don't have enough food and water and shelter and all of those things. But I think we're moving more towards the possibility where no one has to have a type of survivor anxiety. We still have a long way to go, both in resources, although maybe not so much in resources, but really how we distribute them in a way that everyone gets something. I know that could even sound like socialism when I talk about distributing or redistribution. But what I mean is uh, the notion that no one should starve to death. No one should die because they don't have health care or a certain type of health care or access to clean water. Uh, I think to me these are human rights issues. And even it's in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights that everyone should have access to these types of things. And to me, this makes complete sense that everyone should have rights and access to these things. No one should be dying from lack of food when we have enough food. No one should be dying from lack of water when we have enough. And it's up to us to make this happen. I think also with the advancement of technology, this will become easier. And as it does so, that can be a very good thing. And so what I see happening is that we're moving away from, um, we have moved away from the hunter-gatherer small tribe and we were focused on relationships and then work became the focus because what I hear and even I felt it myself when you think okay we won't need people to work as much or people might have two hour three hour work days um, is that well what are people going to do and almost there's this feeling that people are going to be almost lazy or have nothing to do but what I think is going to happen is we're going to start to value relationships even more again um that people can spend more time together and and that families can spend more time together people can be more connected to one another children will have more access to their parents they'll get to spend more time with mom and dad or dad and dad and mom and mom but they'll have more access to their parents and their families that we won't have to be so deprived as we are today where the obsession is with work that we think well no people have to spend you know, eight, 10 hours a day working away from their family to make the money. And we think that this is the way it has to be, but really it doesn't have to be that way. If we can work less and still have enough, I think that would be great. And then spend more time connecting with one another. And so technology to me has done this interesting thing where because of it, we became more disconnected with the advances of agriculture and then things like factory work and even work today and corporate work and all those types of things, it made us more disconnected. And then also with the advent of things like telephones and our cell phones, cell phones have made us much more disconnected. I talk about it on the show a lot that it doesn't have to. I think we have to each ask ourselves, am I using my phone? Am I using technology in general as a device to create connection or disconnection? I think for the majority of people, it creates disconnection both from themselves, because we use our phone as a distraction to not feel our feelings and not think our thoughts because they can be uncomfortable, and also to disconnect us from others. Um, people are around others; they're on their phone. I'm guilty of that. Um, people don't uh, communicate with each other. They even their kids, their loved ones, husbands, wives. They are not as connected as they can be because of their phones. Now, the phone can also connect you. You might want to talk to someone who's halfway across the world in Europe, and you can use FaceTime to talk to someone there where you really couldn't connect to them, or you can talk to someone who was even down the street, but You wouldn't be able to talk to them without the technology if you can't walk over to one another. another. So technology can be used to connect, but unfortunately I see that we've used it to disconnect. But what can happen is if with AI and the advances of things like robots that can do lots of the work that people are doing, it might allow us to work less and then create the possibility where we can connect more again. So kind of this circular um, format where we start from being connected and then with technology, we became more disconnected, but as technology advanced far enough, and if we also as a society can advance far enough, we can then go back to recognizing the importance of relationships, of connecting human to human, which research shows us when we look at happiness and well-being, long-term happiness, not just feelings of joy or pleasure, the quality of our relationships is the most important thing. People who have Good quality relationships, quality rather than quantity. They are the ones that feel the best over and uh, beyond education, financial uh, well-being up to a certain point or past a certain point. What we need is relationships. And so I'm hopeful that with the advancement of technology in this way, although people might think, well, what are people going to do? I think we're going to spend much more time on things like relationships and also other things like coming up with new ideas, Uh, being creative, allowing people to be more free to think in a way and not be so restricted in what they do, we will redefine what work means or what it means to be a productive human being. I don't think a productive human being has to spend 10 hours in an office every day or else they're lazy or bad. I think there's many other ways they can be involved with their families, spending time with people, coming up with new ways of helping others, connecting with people that maybe are even strangers to them, let's say. There's other forms of connection that can be cultivated when we have more of this time, more of this human capital for people to spend in relationships rather than just in doing work, what we think of as work. And then we have relationships between individuals, but relationships between countries. If we have enough resources, if we see that we're all secure, that the survival of everyone is okay that will likely lead to less fighting. I'm not saying that'll instantly lead to world peace and the resolution of all longstanding conflicts, but it opens up more opportunities when we see that we are all okay, that there isn't this scarcity that we have to be afraid of. There already isn't that, and we still have the old mindset that we have to be fighting to get what we want. But really, when we see there's enough, we won't have as much of a need to fight with one another. We won't feel that we need to go at war to fight over resources. A lot of war has always been about that. going back to our ancestors, they had to fight over resources. Survival was more of an issue that wasn't so clear as it might be for someone, let's say in the most people, I should say, not everyone in the United States who survival day to day is not something they're so worried about or have much anxiety about before they did have to worry more especially when they would get in contact with one another. But we still have this old world mentality that we need to fight to survive. But I'm hopeful that when we advance more with technology and we have more of a a surplus, in a sense, of resources, both of time and food, water, whatever else it might be, there will be less of this fear or anxiety about the future, that people will feel more comfortable and they'll be more okay. Um, And I'm Excited, I don't know exactly how, of the ways that we will advance in understanding what it means to be productive. Because I do think for human beings to feel good about themselves and to feel long term happiness, contentment, and fulfillment, their life has to have meaning. So uh, I'm not, and I'm not thinking that the advancement will be that everyone does nothing, although leisure and those things are not nothing, it can be very enjoyable and we can connect to one another, but that there will be new ways of being productive or we will do more of some of the things that we already do when it comes to relationships, family relationships, friend relationships, um, connecting with one another, that there will be new ways of being productive, that I think we will realize we will lose some of this mindset that we have now, that if someone doesn't work a lot, they uh, and work in the specific way we do it now, they're bad or lazy. And I think for a lot of people, they might even resist this, especially I've seen this with older generations, always not the current one, but always the previous generation, sometimes if they went through something, they think, well, the next generation should too. If our schools had corporal punishment and they were harsh on us, today's kids shouldn't get it easy. And we should be hitting them too, or giving them that kind of punishment. If we had to work 40, 50 hour weeks, then you should too. I don't agree with this mentality. If you think something was happening that wasn't good, you shouldn't want for more people to have it somehow to justify what you went through or to make it okay. If I went to some place and they beat me, I don't think it's fair or good for me even to think, well, the next people that go there, I hope they get beat too actually, if I think it was wrong, I should fight against what happens there to bring about justice there so those people don't get hurt. But so I think some people will resist this movement towards, let's say, less work hours in the way that we work now, because they think somehow it's going to lead to the degradation of people or that people will be lazy or um, soft. But I don't think that has to be the case. I think we can recognize the value in other things, and that we have become attached to this mindset that work has to look a certain way, that if you don't work a certain number of hours, you're lazy and useless and all these other bad things, but that it's actually quite different, that we were valuing the wrong things. We had the wrong mindset for a father to be home with his child for several months, um, when the child is born and even more than that is not him being lazy or weak. It's actually the best way he can probably spend his time. The best thing he can do is to create that connection both for himself, but also especially for his son or daughter, that new generation. And so we will start to value things differently. And I think the advent and the advancements of AI and robots and things that will quote unquote replace humans in the work they're doing it'll replace some of the work that um, it's okay to be replaced and we'll find other ways to be productive. For some reason, the analogy came to my mind that some people will say, if you have a child and you ask for help, ask them to do more things around the house, for example, cooking and cleaning, but you interact with your child more. Don't pass on that childcare. Don't pass that relationship part over. Pass the other duties over. So similarly, I think we're going to do that With the advancement of AI, I hope that we pass over some of the work, the things that have to get taken care of as far as tasks, but then we'll invest more of our time, energy, resources in relationships and connecting to one another and especially connecting to families and loved ones um, as well. So just some thoughts on AI. Uh, It's interesting to speculate about these things but also they make make us aware of some assumptions that we might have that we might not be aware of. All right, let's go into our last commercial break studio number three, one, zero, four, four, one, zero, five, five, five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. wanted to end the show today talking about a way that we talk about our feelings. Um, it's something that I see happen a lot in how people express themselves. And so the first part is that people will sometimes ask, "Am I should I feel what I'm feeling? Or almost, do I have the right to feel what I'm feeling? And related to that is then, because of that, should I share what I'm feeling? Is it enough to share what I'm feeling? And it is important for us to always reflect on our feelings. And at times, it can feel like our feelings might even surprise us. Like you might feel very upset about something. Even you realize, you know, this feels like more than in response to what's going on. So that'll let you think either it's about something about me and this person in that relationship. Maybe I have, let's say, some resentment or built up anger that I haven't expressed towards them, or this issue is something sensitive for me or is triggering something from my past. So I think it is important to reflect in that way. So I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but I see it happen a lot in relationships, especially um, all relationships, but romantic relationships where things can be even more heightened, where we ask ourselves, should I ask this? And so because, or should I feel this and should I express this? And because of that, what you see people do at times is rather than expressing their feelings and also because they don't want to be vulnerable in that moment, they share what is going on in some generality. So husband says something to wife and the wife doesn't like it, rather than saying, I was hurt by what you said, they say making comments like that is wrong, kind of like in a universal way. People shouldn't make those types of comments or something along those lines where it becomes a generality and it becomes intellectualized. And also it, it does a few things. It's saying, I'm, I'm right, you're wrong, or me, more clearly actually what you're doing is wrong in some intellectual, unequivocal, statistically provable way that most people would agree that what you're doing is wrong. And this removes all uh, intimacy emotionally in the conversation. And it takes it away from the two people who are talking into some abstract world, which really won't get them very far. So someone says something, you say, that is Um, unequivocally a wrong thing to say, or let's debate about if that's right or wrong. And people would much rather do that than to say, I was hurt by what you said. I am feeling hurt right now. Because while the feeling of talking in an intellectual detached way can make people feel in a way powerful or even superior, and they look down, I don't want to say empowered because that's not necessarily bad, but there's a way of, it's almost like you're looking down at the person, and you're putting yourself above them and putting yourself above yourself, really, and what you're feeling. There is a feeling that some people can have that vulnerability means they're being weak. So to say, I was hurt by that is very difficult, but to say that what you just said was wrong based on what experts say in relationships or what is happening uh, and what, what, what most people would say is right or wrong. So we are making it a lot easier to talk about the issue. Unfortunately, Easier for us in that moment, more comfortable for us maybe, but we're not going to actually get to connect with the person who we are talking to. So it's important to recognize this. And I've seen myself even do this, but I see it happen often in couples therapy or even in family therapy, this in how people communicate. You'll see, you'll catch yourself or catch people doing this. And I want to be careful when I say catch, you also then don't want to catch them and say, oh, see, you're doing that wrong thing, that blah, 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 because we're kind of doing the same thing, but being aware of that. That when are we going there? And also, why are we going there? Is this something that's hard for you to say that you were hurt? Um, Is there a way that you like to feel superior to others or superior to this person, this partner, whoever it is? And so you're going there and recognize that it's creating a distance between first you and your own feelings, but then it's going to create a distance between you and the person you are talking to. So rather than saying, this is a wrong thing, what you did. Or I think most, uh, I hear it a lot in these kinds of ways. I think most wives wouldn't like if their husbands did. I think most husbands wouldn't like this. I think most psychologists would say that doing what you did is wrong. These types of things, there can be some place for them at some point in the conversation. But what we always want to get back to is your feeling. Because your feeling matters. First, it should matter to you. And it It should matter. It needs to matter to your partner. Your partner has to care about how you're feeling, not because you are right to feel that way, not because other people would definitely feel that way or the majority of husbands 45 to 55 years old would feel this way, but because your feelings should matter to your partner. If you touch your partner's arm and they say, ow, you don't say, well, no, I didn't touch your arm hard enough. You shouldn't feel ow. We don't know. Maybe they have a cut there. They're sore there. Something is going on. But hopefully your response is, oh, if you feel pain, I don't like that. I don't want you to feel pain. I care about that. And just like in this example, if you touch their arm and they say, ow, it doesn't mean you were necessarily a bad person. If you didn't know they have this cut or injury there, you touched their arm. And so this also comes back to another important concept when we're talking um, about feelings and about things that happen in relationships is that if one partner feels something, it doesn't mean the other person is at fault or responsible for how that person feels. So if someone says, you what you said hurt my feelings, it's important for that partner to hear them, but it doesn't necessarily mean you said something mean or harsh or that you're a bad partner or that you should be punished for what you said, it's important to try to understand what your partner felt. You can share what you were feeling and what you said and go from there. So you touch your partner's arm. They say, ow, you try to understand it. Now, if you know your partner has an injury and you intentionally hit them there, that's that would be more uh, bad or wrong or that would be the intention would probably be to hurt. That's very different. Same thing emotionally. If you know your partner has a sensitive spot somewhere and doesn't like when something is brought up or you say something a certain way and you intentionally say it that way. Well, if your intention is to hurt them, that's very different than if you are accidentally or just in the uh, course of being in a relationship with someone hurting them unintentionally. The intention is always important. We can't forget that in everything we do, we have to look at the intention. Someone could be bringing you flowers because they genuinely want to express kindness or love towards you or they could be bringing you flowers to butter you up to then take advantage of you later on the act of giving flowers itself yes it looks like a good one but the intention behind it is what's more important than the action itself good intentions or bad intentions that look very good are actually very bad things because that means someone's trying to manipulate you or do something so we have to look at what is it did i say that intentionally to hurt you i said that on accident, but coming back to how we express ourselves. It can be tough to say, I was hurt by what you said. Most of us would like not to get hurt so easily we have or to get hurt, I should say, I shouldn't say easily, but to feel hurt. There is a strong feeling we get. We feel really good about. Oh, that wouldn't bother me. And people love to say that too. Someone says, Oh, you know, I have a fear of heights. I say, Oh, I don't I don't care about heights at all. I go walk up a mountain and I look over the cliff and I feel nothing. And we get a good feeling by putting ourselves above someone else and making them weak in our eyes, either to them themselves, but in our own mind of, oh, look how much stronger I am than so-and-so. That doesn't bother me. But I think it's always good to have that humility to remember we have weaknesses, we all have uh, hurt feelings, we all have insecurities, we all have these things that make us imperfect, and that's okay, that's part of being human. And so hopefully rather than when someone shares their own insecurity, their weakness, their fear, instead of thinking, oh, I'm so good because I don't have that, We should connect to our own and be like, oh, I don't have that one, but I know I have my own. So if they're afraid of heights and I'm not, I know, and I can speak personally for myself. I don't like uh, when I get a shot where you give blood. That for me is something that creates a lightheaded feeling and I don't feel very good. So I have that feeling. I might not have the one that they have, but I can connect to that. And we should try to avoid that lure to try to feel superior and feel good, which itself Comes from this place of because we can feel weak and feel like we're not that strong, we're trying to compensate by in that moment displacing our own feeling of weakness onto that person and telling ourselves how strong we are. We hopefully can recognize that oh, this is a moment to connect rather than to try to make ourselves feel superior. And so, if we can accept that all humans have frailties, we're We have weaknesses, weak points, sensitive points, insecurities, fears, all those types of things, painful memories that can get triggered. Then we can accept that it's okay for me to feel these and for me to share these with someone else. Everyone has them. Um, if someone tells me they have no weaknesses then that just tells me you're they're a very self-unaware person they lack self-awareness because they don't know where their own weaknesses are and so sometimes people think it's good to say you don't have any issues so if you're dating someone and someone says oh i don't have any psychological illnesses issues just anything at all psychologically i'm perfect that to me is the scariest person to date and start a relationship with Because that just means they're unaware. It doesn't mean they don't have any issues. That's not possible. It's just like if someone told you they never sleep, you just know they're lying or they don't understand what sleep is or what they're doing seven, eight hours a night. Um, But you don't think they're invincible. We sometimes think we should be or we need to be. And so because of this mindset that having feelings makes you sensitive in the weak way, that's a bad thing, we think we should never have feelings and we need to avoid them. And so we get into our relationships, the place where I talked about this a lot last week, how important it is to be vulnerable and to create emotional intimacy by sharing the weaknesses, the, the sad feelings, the maybe not so pleasant feelings with each other. We enter our relationships and think we shouldn't have these because if we don't or if we do have them, we won't be loved. And if we don't have them, maybe someone will love us. If we don't have any weaknesses, if I am perfectly strong, people will love me. But when we realize that actually it's those frailties, those imperfections that make us human and us also allow us to connect with one another, hopefully we can take that risk of being vulnerable, especially with our partners, and hopefully they'll respond in a way that makes us feel good and express what we feel. I feel hurt. I am sad or I didn't like when you did this or this happened, rather than escaping from that and going to a place of intellectual discourse and putting the person down and saying what you did was wrong based on, you know, the British Institute of science would say what you did was wrong. I don't think that's a real thing, but that place of trying to deem what they did wrong rather than point into our own hurt, we have to go into our own pain rather than go away from it into some intellectual discourse. So, your feeling is enough. It doesn't have to be that the, um, some experts or the majority of people would feel what you're feeling. That can sometimes be good and feel nice in a different way. But when you're in a relationship with someone, you each should care about the other person's feelings. If they are hurt, that itself is enough to be worth talking about to be worth looking at and seeing how you can work on that issue as a couple. It isn't just if it meets some threshold of a certain number of people have that, that you should care. If that example of your the arm, if your partner's arm is hurting, you don't think, well, you know, most people don't have that type of pain in their arm so I can bump into it and it doesn't matter. That's your problem. No, you care. And so if they're feeling something, you care if it's physical. Similarly, we should care if it's emotional as well. If you're hurt, that means something to me. I don't want you to be hurt because I care about you. And if you're hurt, it doesn't mean I'm bad. Even if I was the one that hurt you in that moment, it could be that this is where your sensitivity lies and I'm not aware of it. And now I can understand it better. And that's worth discussing. So if we leave the realm of who's right who's wrong who's good who's bad who's strong who's weak and just be two humans who are communicating with one another we open up a lot of possibilities and opportunities to connect rather than to disconnect and rather to try to prove who's better or worse who's smarter or who's more dumb in a given situation and so if you see yourself or see someone else doing this try to be aware of that that sometimes instead of saying i feel something it's easier to say Experts say this, or most people would feel that, and you're wrong in this situation. Stay with your feelings rather than going to that intellectual space. Stay with being two equals rather than trying to be superior. Recognize that you feeling something doesn't mean you're weak or less than. It just means you're human in this moment. That's what you're feeling. All right. We've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. Again, the book of the week is Everything is eft a book about hope by Mark Mance. I'll share that with you next week. You've listened to In Session with Dr. Fadi DeLoc. We Have a wonderful night.